What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Hi there, it's Paul, and you're listening to What the Footy, the football business podcast that goes behind the scenes and gives fans, industry experts, athletes, aspiring sports professionals, and more unrivaled insight into football, business, and how the beautiful game is evolving. Here is what I have lined up for you today. Saying we need a left back and he gave me some some attributes that he wanted us to look at. And uh, I came back with a couple of Hungarians and uh, a few other players and I know that Palace did look at them. I hope you love it. Not like it, I hope you love it. So if you're locked in and listening, give the pod a follow and a five-star review and tell a friend to tell a friend. Let's go. Knew Sam Allardyce liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school. Now it's a putting off. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, Based on one single source of revenue alone that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fan. Great to have you in the podcast today, Miles. How are you doing? Very, very well, thank you. It's uh it's good to be back in the office. Um at the start of the year I had uh, a couple of weeks off for various reasons and I'm not very good with time off normally. So I'm I'm glad to be back at work and uh Good to be able to make some announcements as well. We've got PlayStation coming out and um, new update for uh, for people who are playing FM23. So, yeah, it's exciting times at the moment. Also working on future projects that I'm not even allowed to say what they are at the moment. But a lot of my time is is being spent um, looking at future games as well. So I'm, uh, I'm a very lucky boy, basically, getting to, to make football manager for a living. Now, I'm, I'm going to get into that even more. But the question that we ask all the guests is, what is football to you, a business or a sport, and why? So there are different versions of me. And did the different versions of me see it differently? So football for me is... Actually, I'll take it across sport. Football for me isn't... It's not business and it's not sport. It's a vocation. So making making football manager to me is a vocation. It's my life's work. Um, some days it feels like a job, but not very often. So I'm pretty lucky on that score. Um, but football over the years has also been an escape. And I know that FM is an escape for a lot of people. Um, but when I was a kid, uh, it was very much an escape. It was a way for me to get any anger out because you can scream from the terraces. Over the years, that's probably changed. So sometimes going to football is work, but not when they're on the pitch. When the players are on the pitch, then I'm there to um, I'm there to support. I'm there to learn. Um, I guess I, wo- I I watch football slightly differently um, to some people because. I've always been intrigued, even from a really young age. I, I got into football because of the maths and stats element to it, right? And the physics and the angles. And I will often watch games of football where I'm actually just doing player cam and I'm watching one particular um, one particular player 
Um, an example of that, Watford had an FA Cup game um, against Blackburn when Blackburn were at their pomp because I'm I'm proper old, remember? So, um, <clears throat> and I did player cam of Alan Shearer and was surprised when he elbowed someone uh, within the first minute when the ball was up the other end of the field, which he would obviously deny. But uh, but I saw it there with my own eyes. So I probably watch football differently to a lot of people. But the one thing about football that never leaves is um, the mates that you meet at football. And there are people that I met when I was 10, 11, 12 years old that I'm still friends with. Now I was at a birthday party just before Christmas for, for two of them where they were both having 50th birthday parties. And it's like... <laughs> You know, I'd known one of them for 40 years and one of them for 35. It's pretty ridiculous how that happens. So so sorry I can't be just completely straight down the line with it's business or it's sport. For me, it's more than both of those things. It's, you know, an absolutely massive part of my life. No, that's a great answer. And a lot of the time we usually have guests split on split on the question. But just, just sort of delving into that a little bit more, Mars, just sort of take me back what the vision was at the time, what the USP was at the time, and how that sort of encapsulated you. Because obviously, prior to that, you were obviously working within the music industry. So what was it that that really sold you about the business and how has that mission and vision changed over time? Originally I got involved because a band that I was working with at the time called Jesus Jones really wanted to have a game made. They wanted a skateboarding Jesus Jones game. So I was going around talking to a load of games publishers and people weren't that interested in doing it. They didn't really see the crossover possibility at that point. Um, But one of the companies I went to see, a company called called Domark, um, two of the people there really wanted to go and see Blur play, which is another band that I was working with. So I swapped two tickets to see Blur to be a tester on Championship Manager 2. And then would send faxes through to Ovin Paul Collier, who were the founders of Sports Interactive, telling them what I liked and what I didn't like about the game, um, about the new game that they were working on, which was Champman 2, and got a fax back one day going, we have no blinking idea who you are, um, but we really like your ideas. Can we meet up? So I went to meet with them and we spoke for a bit and, uh, they asked me to have a look at their contracts and and I went in to renegotiate their contract. So my initial involvement was on a business level. And then I got involved on the data side of things, the research side of things, because I used to put my own data update out in those days as well. Got involved in that side and just got involved more and more over the years until I took over the reins uh, of running the place in 1999. But even for that first few years after 1999, I still had another job. So I carried on working in the music industry until about 2002. And some of that was done from the SI office and some of it was done from my own office um, until 2001. I think I had that office. So the one weird thing about us as as a studio, and this has changed now because we're so big now that we have to have plans. But back in those days didn't really have a five-year plan or anything like that. You know, the idea was not to get to the size that we were. The idea that, that we are now, the, the idea was let's make the best games that we possibly can for ourselves and hope that people out there 
enjoy them as well. And part of that is still part of the driving force of the studio. You know, we have a design team now. I'm creative director as as well as heading the studio. So, um, you know, we still we have a clear vision of what the different products should be because we've got Football Manager, Football Manager Mobile, Football Manager Console, Football Manager Apple Arcade. They all have different um, have different USPs, diff- different uh, unique points to them, even though they're based around the same engine. Um, but we're still just trying to make the best games that we possibly can each year um, for for the different types of players that we have because we we group everything into five different types of person who plays the game and try and make sure that there are features that all of those groups are going to enjoy each year. Because obviously you've got the real hardcore players, the ones who play for a 1,000 hours a year. You've got the people who play for 20 hours a year. The average is 150 hours a year. Um, and then the new players coming through, and you've kind of got to give everyone something each year, but it also has to remain canon to what the game is about. And essentially the game is a parallel universe that you can escape into because I expect you enjoy doing podcasts, Paul, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. So you're one of the lucky 5% of people in the world who actually enjoy their job. 95% of people out there do their job to put food on the table. And that's the only reason why, why they're doing it. A lot of those people want to be football managers. So we make a game that lets them escape into that universe in, in the evenings and uh, and become what they can't be during the day. Building on that as well, I think I previously sort of heard you say that in the early days for you is really important in terms of embedding yourself into the football world and understanding how that was really working and to make the game as real as possible. Because I think over the years, it's been fantastic use cases of people who have used the game in terms of scouting, used the games in terms of helping them to get jobs within football. How, how did you go about breaking into the football industry? Because the game has transcended just the gaming world and has now become part of not just football, but culture as well. Yeah, so, you know, if you're making a football simulation, then you've got to be able to get information directly from the football world. Um, And I'm kind of lucky in a way because I had that music background as well as games. Um, There's a level of, um, some might call it confidence. For me, it's not being scared. I'll, I'll talk to anyone at any point right it's it's all good it's why i've been very public on twitter although the last couple of years maybe less so um but i'm quite happy to call someone up that i haven't met and just go hello this is me i want to do this and uh being cheeky can help sometimes so you know there are very true stories of me calling clubs because i'm in a particular city in europe and calling them up and going hi i'm miles can i come to training tomorrow and a lot of them have said yes over the years. And you you end up being able to be in that situation or going into um going into team meetings and meeting people and um talking to footballers as though they're humans, not like they're heroes. Um and the same with managers and the same with coaches. And that um that earlier on 
uh, in the time, and probably for the first 20 years I was here really, was the way that things would happen. So I would go and have a meeting with someone. I would get as much information out of them as I possibly could do. Um, and then come into the office next day and go, oh, I've just learned about this. So we need to add this to the game this year. And sometimes you'd get, oh, yeah, rubbish. That's that's not true. Um, but most of the time people were, you know, people in the team were like, yeah, okay. The way we've kind of switched that round now, because we're a lot bigger now than we were then. You know, those are the days when there were 20 or 30 others. There's 280 of us now at the studio working on four different games. Um, and nowadays we have a series in the studio called The Foot Talks, so once a month, I have to turn into a a journalist, if you like, and I spend 45 minutes interviewing someone from the football world. It might be a manager, it might be a YouTube team manager, um, it might be a coach, it might be a data analyst, it might be a CEO, you know, across, across the spectrum um, of football, and sit there and ask them a few questions about their career, but I'm mainly asking them about questions on features that we're actually working on for future games. And then the next 45 minutes, we open the floor to people who've, other people in the studio come through and ask questions. And everyone in the studio knows that nothing is allowed to leak from, from these things. And that's an absolute imperative that nothing leaks because that's the way that I've always dealt with it. And the access that that gives you is pretty ridiculous, really. So um, I had lunch a day with a couple of people from a club. Last night, I spent an hour um, on the phone to the commercial director from a very successful club. Um, I've spoken to a couple of directors of football today about the transfer targets that they have at the moment in the window. Um, I need to speak to someone else tonight about that stuff. So, you know, you end up becoming embedded in football in that way, but particularly because nothing leaks. So um, many journos have tried over the years, many agents have tried over the years, um, but we'll probably get to that with the uh, two truths and one lie later on. Um, but nothing... Yeah, we, we keep it all secret. We just put it all in the game and uh, people... People appreciate that. So they're a lot more open with us than they would be with a journalist because they know that they can actually be honest about things. And um, it's a, a big driving force for what we do in the game. It, it's always it's always quite funny when people turn around to me on tour and go, this has never happened in real life. And I'm sitting there in my head going, well, that exact situation did happen in real life. And that's why it's there in the game that you can't really turn around and and say that to people sometimes. Um but yeah, we've we've been we've been pretty lucky in the way that we've been accepted. But it did take a long time. Um, if you think how we've been working football data for a very very long time, and now it's prevalent in football, but ten years ago everyone would laugh when you were talking about data and the fact that we've got we've got more scouts than them around the world, and they'll go, yeah, but those scouts weren't footballers. And I'm like, okay, but you look at most football journalists are the people that lots and lots of people learn about football from they also weren't footballers they're just people who've studied the game in a different way um and it is more than possible for uh by studying the game to become an expert in it 
even if your feet do something completely different than what your brain wants you to do when you're on a football pitch. No, that's that's really interesting because I think just just leading on from that, the bit I wanted to really understand is at what point within the journey did did it go from being a game to clubs actually calling you up and saying like, can we have access to to your researchers and scouts that are based in in Ecuador or in the conference north or the conference south and and and, and it actually being used as, as as part of the process because when you first started up, why scout didn't exist. Prozone at that time wasn't in, in in his existence yet. So at what point did it kind of kind of shift into into that direction? Yeah, well, Opta didn't even exist. Um, I saw an interview with the original founders of Opta many many years ago, um, where they were asked why did you set it up, and I, I think their answer was something along the lines of because Sports Interactive didn't monetize their data, um, so we did it instead. Um, so the first the first person to ever call me up. Um, wanting data. And we knew that clubs were kind of referring to it already. But the first person to phone me up um, was Ray Houghton when he was assistant manager at uh, Crystal Palace, so the ex-Liverpool Republic of Ireland player. And I just get this unknown number coming up on my phone and uh, this Irish accent of, of Ray's, this unmistakable accent of Ray's saying we need a left back. Um, and he gave me some, some attributes that he wanted us to look at. And uh, I came back with a couple of Hungarians and uh, a few other players. And I know that Palace did look at them and they might have even signed one of them. Um, and yeah, that was, that was just a call out the blue. He'd got my number off someone, but when Ray lost his job at Palace, um, he then came and worked with us. So he would sit there and watching the match engine in 2D and telling us when players were out of position and stuff like that. So it's pretty awesome how um, how that all uh, ended up coming in full circle. Um, and it was always funny when you turn up for the five-a-side games in the Islington five-a-side league where our office was in the time and he had Ray Houghton playing for you. And it's like... <laughs> Hang on a sec. So he's not a ringer. He genuinely works for us. Um, so that was quite good fun. But yeah, Ray, Ray was the first. And then we had an official deal with Everton a few years after that. I think that was around 2000 and 2010, something like that, that we started working with Everton officially. And since then, I mean, it's the amount of clubs that we work with on the data side of things is huge. But as I mentioned earlier, nothing ever leaks. So I'm not going to tell you who we work with because... Unless they're publicising it, we won't. Because um, that's how the best relationships in football work. No, I couldn't agree more because I think the, as someone who plays the game myself, it's a fantastic way to to discover a player for the first time and kind of follow them on their journey as they kind of progress. Like one of my great finds, Mars, was Pierre-Emil Hoiberg when he was playing for, for the Bayern Munich reserve team and seeing him actually, I signed him for Barnet and seeing him just progressing his career to all those caps for Denmark and then playing at Southampton and then going on to play for Bayern Munich as well. It's, it's just fantastic to see, really. Yeah, it is. And football club discovers the player first. Our researchers discover the player second. And then the people who play the game discover the players third. And we'll turn around and go, oh, you know, you should be signing this 
this person. And a lot of times the clubs don't know them because we're looking at players at such a young age compared to, to a lot of clubs. But there's always somebody at the football club who've discovered them before us. It's not like we are... Um, it's not like we're going to the cages in South London and, uh, and you know, scouting the players down there when they're 12 and then tipping off clubs about them. We, we don't we don't go to that kind of level but there are obviously lots of uh, lots of youth clubs out there who do before before pro clubs get to see them as well so it goes back it goes back quite a long way that discovery process but um but everyone likes to think that they discovered them in some way whether that's watching them in real life or whether that's utilizing them in uh, in football manager and do you and do you feel that scouting is is more than a science than than an art than ever before? Um, it's always been a science. It's mathematical based, so therefore, um, therefore, yeah. But I think um, scouting and the data analysis side of things is really important because football is a game of marginal marginal gains, right? If you look at that top level. When you get to 95% of what you're able to do, is then how do you get the other 5%? In fact, it's not even that. You're 99%. How do you even get that that extra 1%? And it's um, it's tiny parts of, of percentages that help give you that competitive advantage. If you can have a transfer policy where you are having a 75% plus strike rate, then you're doing pretty well. Because if you look back at any of the big clubs over the years, it's it's normally a 50-50 strike rate. If you can be a club like Brighton or Brentford that have a 90% plus strike rate or a 95% strike rate, then that is absolutely incredible. And it means that you end up batting above your weight as both of those clubs have been doing, you know, with their performances in the Premier League and doing it on a on a much more limited budget. Um, I think Brighton less so. Now that they've managed to sell a few of those players for so much money, their budgets are probably a little bit bigger. Um, we have roughly a 99% strike rate with our players. Now, people will point out the players that we've got wrong. Ho, 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 ho. No, oh, yeah, yeah, you're idiots. So you said that guy was going to be great, and then he didn't end up being being great. But we're getting ninety nine percent of them right, so you know that's that's a pretty good strike rate, and I'm incredibly proud of that. Um, and our next, you know, one of our next big things is bringing that to the women's game as well, setting up a, a research network of the women's game that will hopefully. Um, there's a lot less data in in the women's game available, so that will hopefully um, bring bring some future superstars to the attention of people who just wouldn't know about them otherwise. That's yeah. that's that's the next dream. And even even on that on that strike rate that you mentioned, I think I read that the one of the people that you apologized to was uh, was Harry Kane. I did indeed. Poor old Harry. Um so and Harry won young player of the year at the London Football Awards, which is just after he broke into Tottenham's first team and was doing really well in the in the um in the UEFA Cup, as it was at the time, um, he—I'd um, known his agent for a while, uh, or his agent at the time for a while—and 
Marlon came over and was like, you know, Harry would like to say hello. Is that okay? And it's like, well, in what world am I going to say no to saying hello to Harry Kane? You know, it would be what a ridiculous question. Um, but I went over to see Harry and, um, and yeah, my opening gambit was, you know, I'm really sorry. Um, our researchers, when they were seeing you on loan, didn't think that you were going to get as good as you have done. So you've had one of the biggest leaps in uh, in the history of the game in the last update. He was honest about it. He turned around and said, yeah, well, you know, I don't blame them. I wasn't great when I was alone at Leicester. And uh, um, and we kind of took it from there. So he was quite understanding with it. But yeah, we don't, we don't get it right every time. Um, we didn't get Jamie Vardy right either, but I don't think anyone got Jamie Vardy right. Um, better with Harry Maguire when he was at Sheffield United. We did pretty well with him. Landry Robertson when he was at Hull. But it, it's more for us the um it's those 16, 17 year olds that we're picking out. And um we've just signed one of them on loan at, at my beloved Watford, although he's 19 now, and uh, uh Henry Arujo, it's probably a terrible pronunciation of his name. But um I'm genuinely excited to see him putting on the yellow shirt, even though we've only got him on loan. Um, because there's a reason why he has a hundred million euro release clause, right? He's, he's going to be an absolutely phenomenal player. Great. We've managed to get him at Watford. I'm delighted that, that I'm going to get to see him. And hopefully he's one that my researchers have got, uh, our Portuguese researchers have got right because they think he's phenomenal. And if he, if he can get us the goals that get us up this season, that's brilliant. Yeah, and, and, and even just in terms of like a researcher, like what's the criteria to having the because obviously the game the game itself is based on the quality of the research and the quality of the data. What what is the key criteria or component in terms of having having the best research? Because I think I've I've seen you say before that you believe that football manager is the best scouting network there is out there and the vast amount of scouts that you have in all all corners of the world, what is the, the best way to, to find these researchers? What we look for is people who aren't biased. And that is a really, really, really important thing with a lot of, if you read a lot of, um, a lot of football fans tweets, they are regularly wearing glasses that are coloured the same as those club shirts. And there are certain clubs that you, you should avoid ever tweeting about because you're just going to get laid in. I made that mistake yesterday with one of those clubs of trying to say something very common sense and it was straight away that, that anger. Um, so when we first started out looking for people back in the day, we were looking for people. We basically went to a load of fanzine writers originally, because the thing with fanzine writers back then is it's such a lot of work to actually put a fanzine together. It's a load more work than just making a blog or doing a podcast, right? Because you've getting them printed is a nightmare in itself and standing on a street corner selling them in the wind and rain isn't a lot of fun as well. But what we found with the fanzine writers is that they tended to be more balanced with the way that they would think about things. If they were too praising, there was no point anyone actually buying the fanzine because then you were just reading exactly what you thought as well, which does happen in the echo chambers that we've got nowadays. But I think um, it's always good to have that balanced view. So in the same way, something like The Athletic, I think is a very balanced publication. 
a lot of the journalists that they have looking after the different clubs are genuine supporters of those clubs. But they're people who are balanced, who don't just see the good the whole time. They see the bad as well. And that that is a really, really important facet if you're going to be a researcher. Um, but you also need to obviously have an eye for a footballer and you need to be able to follow instructions because the guidelines to being a scout are around 100, 160, 170 pages of guidelines. And if one person goes outside of those guidelines and decides, oh, I've got a better way of researching them, I'm going to do them this way, then that imbalances the whole game. So we've got a lot of checks and balances that go on in the background to make sure that that's, that that's not happening so that we don't all of a sudden have a a random team from Azerbaijan winning the Champions League. You know, that that wouldn't be uh that wouldn't be a believable thing to happen in game. And I I spoke earlier about the escapism. That suspension of disbelief, as we call it, is so important. If something happens in the game that just wouldn't happen in real life, that um that takes people out of that believable world and back into the real world, even for a split second before they go back in. So we're pretty harsh on ourselves when it comes to making sure that the game is as good as, as possible. How, how have you been able to kind of hack the unlimited repeat value that comes out of the game in terms of getting people to continuously play the game, as you kind of mentioned earlier, for hours and hours on end, and as new games come out, so the most recent game came out a couple of months ago in November, you're probably working on updates, as you mentioned now, probably working towards the new game that's going to come out later this year as well. There's How a new game later this year. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope there will be. I don't think we've announced anything yet, but I definitely <laughs> hope there will be. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. How do you kind of get, get around that hurdle of creating that unlimited repeat value? So... The suspension of disbelief comes back into play. It, is, it really is the most important thing that we do when we're making the game is to try and make it believable. Um, we try to make the best value for money game on the planet. I spoke earlier about how most people don't enjoy their jobs. Most people work incredibly hard to put the money together to be able to buy a game, right? They're 50 quid. Um, and if you're working on £12 an hour, £15 an hour, You've got to pay bills as well, particularly during the cost of living crisis that we're all facing at the moment. So it's um, by making a world that you can escape into, I think that's what gives it the replayability factor because people actually would rather be playing the game than they would be doing their job. Um, so we're very proud of our average playtimes. We're already at 150 hours average playtime on FM. 23, which is incredible. I think most games would would kill for that. I reckon we'll end up at around 200 because more people are playing the game than ever before. Um, we've we've like it's crazy the amount of people are playing it. With thanks to us embracing subscription platforms like Apple Arcade, like Game Pass, it means more people are prepared to give the game a try. Um, which is which is brilliant for us because we we like to entertain as many people as possible. Um. But the mechanics to FM, there are some mechanics that are very simple and there are some mechanics that are very complicated and people want to master the complicated ones. Um, they enjoy the simple ones. But at the end of the day, the game never finishes. 
people can set a finishing point in their head and go, oh, when I win the league with this club, I'm going to stop playing the game. But when you win the league, you then go, oh, I could do the double. Or I could win in a continental competition. Um, Or I could go and play an international team, but no one wants to do that. So very few people want to do that in game. Um, But but it's... It's that one more match factor, I think, that people always want to see what's going to happen next, what's going to happen next. And one of the reasons behind that is a lot of games that you play, you are playing somebody else's story, right? So if you play God of War, there have been a group of brilliant people who have worked on God of War, creating a story that is believable for uh, for, for Kratos to be going through this world um, and the, the different things that uh, that he faces in that world. But you're playing somebody else's story. That story is going to be the same every time. There are little bits where you can go off and do side quests and stuff like that, but even the side quests are the same. In Football Manager, you're making your own story. It's a giant sandbox where the game doesn't care whether you are controlling a character or whether the computer is controlling a character. The options are the same for the AI as they are for you. It's just, hey, the computer's working out the possibilities of what's going to happen over there, whereas you're breaking into it and controlling it. So it's the world's largest story generator. We let people create their own stories, and these are stories that when people do go to the pub, they sit there and talk about them. There are people who write blogs about it. There are people who do podcasts about it. There are streamers who have their stories going through and have people watching them. And I think that's a really important part of it is who am I to tell someone how how they should play the game? Play the game in whatever way you want to. There's no one way to play. There's no right or wrong answer. Just like football, there's no right or wrong answer. I honestly feel like I was listening to a, listening to a motivational speech just then. But I, think, <laughs> I think I think you couldn't sum up any better. And I think I think the game the game is unique and different to, to different people. And I think for myself playing it, it's, it was always a great way for me to discover new players and and then almost back into the real world, see those players go on those journeys to see an Arsenal, the club I support, sign Nuno Tavares. Hang on a minute, that's one of the players that I signed on Football Manager, and I can follow his journey with my club now and and discovering teams that are managed that I never heard of before and and maybe going to go and see them play in Europe one day. But this is how much FM has kind of transcended into the football world, as you were talking about earlier. Um, Five Live the other day on Saturday, the Chelsea-Liverpool game was going on. And Mark Chapman asks that man, Dave, so how many of the players that Chelsea have signed have you signed in Football Manager and how have they gone on to perform? And you just like, hang on a sec, this is the BBC. And and Mark Chapman, who's a broadcaster who I massively respect, you know, he's, he's absolutely brilliant as a broadcaster. And it's just now become part of football that that being dropped in is absolutely perfectly fine. You know, it's just a conversation point. Um, and it's it's pretty humbling when that kind of stuff happens. Because at the end of the day, when I first got involved, there was like five or six of us and we were kids. 
and it's become it's the ultimate in life imitating art imitating life imitating art you know going fully circular um that that we've uh, that we've found ourselves in that position but but you know how lucky are we that we're in that position and we we continue um continue to have more players each year and more people working on the team each year and researching more players each year and more people discovering players each year. And I guess this is the first year that you've probably enjoyed real football more than football manager as an Arsenal fan for, for some time because you're doing so well on the pitch. I expect it's difficult to recreate that in-game. But for most football fans... Most football fans are pretty disappointed each season with how their teams do, right? Um, and I, I'm lucky in a way that I can detach myself a little bit from that. So I don't care what division Watford are in as long as they exist. As long as I can still go and watch them, that's fine. But we have Watford fans who believe we should, you know, believe that we should be striving for the Champions League and anything less than that is ridiculous. And the way that they go on about it as well is just like, grow up. You know, there are people at the club who are doing the best with the resources that they've got. And if they were, if we did have players who were the best in the world, and if we did have staff who were the best in the world, they wouldn't last very long because they'd end up going to the best clubs in the world. You've got the bigger budgets. Just got to be a bit more realistic. But, um, but yeah, it's... Uh, I don't even know how we got onto that point. So I'm going to be quiet and, and you can ask the next question. I don't no. have a good ending for that bit. No, Sorry. no worries. I think, I think it's one of those things in football whereby what's football without a little bit of hope. And I think that's just a couple of people hoping and wishing, wishing on the star really, isn't it? There is, there's nothing wrong with hope, but you have to uh, be realistic. Yeah. You have, there has to be some element of realism in there. Although I say that and, and I look back at my life and it's been the most ridiculous thing going. There's no way I should be doing, you know, as a as a kid who started when he was 14 flipping burgers, how has this ended up happening? Uh, you know, that side of things is slightly ridiculous and hopefully that can inspire um, other people to also have ridiculous dreams and, 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 you know, try and go down the same route as me and do something that, that you absolutely love. Um, but you have there has to be some realism along the way, and, and football fans inherently, most of them are realistic. But the ones that are the noisiest ones on the, on social media aren't, and I don't understand that. Just enjoy football for what it is, which is a beautiful game where you make friends for life, and you're going to have some ups, you're going to have some downs, you're going to have some great away days. Um, you're going to have some nice drinks. You're going to have some bad drinks. You're going to have some decent burgers. And you're going to have some burgers that give you food poisoning. And, uh, you know, that's it, it's one of those beauties, right, of just going out there and enjoying something with your mates. Last question that I always end the show with, what the footy needs to change or happen within your space? Oh, wow. Um, that's a good question. You know what? I wouldn't change anything. I know that might sound that might sound weird, but I think that we are a really, really good studio 
who have a good roadmap. We know where we're going. We're very lucky to have the fans that we have um, and the community that we have. And they don't always agree with us. And they're sometimes a little bit harsh. But I understand why they do that. They're really passionate about it. If you didn't have that, then you, then you wouldn't have that passion. So um, if I had to change something in football, then I would like one global way of using VAR and actually deciding this is how VAR is being used in every league around the world. And then we wouldn't have to talk about it every week because it's really boring talking about VAR all the time. So um, so that's the thing that I change in football. And I, I think VAR is the right thing to be in place. I think referees absolutely need help. But just one one way of doing it would make the world a, a much... Um, it would mean there'd be a lot, a lot more interesting debates on uh, on post-match football punditry rather than just talking about the VAR decisions for once. So yeah, changing something in football would but be. Think, but you think it's possible to to have that one unified global approach when it relies so much on a human interpretation and the use of human opinion because it's what the person in the VAR studio thinks as well. I think it's absolutely possible because there are certain decisions that should just be automated and absolutely can be automated. If you look at the offside rule, as an example, that shouldn't be up for interpretation. You can program a computer to say whether something is offside or not. Oh, and the other thing I change is uh, uh, Watford to be given a billion um, pounds each season just because all the other teams should have to give Watford money so that we have a billion to spend every season on players. And are you um, going to control the purse strings then, yeah? Uh, Sign off on recruitment. <laughs> that would be nice. Actually, thinking about that, I don't want us to have a billion because it would be horrible. It, it would take take the soul out of the club. So, um, so yeah, scrub that one. Just stick with VAR. No, Miles Jacobson, studio director at Sports Interactive. Thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on the What The Footy podcast. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's been fun. Thank you for listening. I hope you loved it. And if you did, give the pod a follow and a five-star review and tell a friend to tell a friend. See you in a fortnight for the next episode. Let's go. What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now it's a putting ass. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fans.